Well, as I said before, good morning. It's great to be with you. And if we haven't met before, um, Russell, I'm part of the staff team. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel. We're finishing off our series in 1 Samuel. Actually, I, I, I lie. Next week, I thought I'd do a bit of a recap. It's a bit of a, a sad ending to this book. <laughs> and I thought it'd be worth just taking a chance to do some big picture thinking about 1 Samuel next week, pick up the big themes and end on a high note. Um, and so we're going to be visiting it, but differently um, next week. But this week, we're ending in this sorry moment with both Saul and David in despair. And so I actually wondered if some of you might have read this book. I had the privilege of reading it a few years back. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. The writer is actually a man who is an editor of Elle, the fashion magazine. He was rich. He was successful. He had hopes and dreams for the future until one day he's taking his son to the opera and he has this unexpected stroke. And the stroke leaves him completely incapacitated, except for one eye. He's able to blink consciously. Everything else is beyond his control. Uh, The only way he has to communicate with the world. And so he really just shares this journey, which is both a journey of hopelessness, but also hope. Um, He talks about it in this way. He he talks about times of deep despair. He talks about most of his life he felt like um, the diving bell. He is living in a diving bell, you know, the old-style diving suits. He's he's able to live, but he's at the bottom of the ocean. He's unable to lift himself out of the water. He cannot communicate with the outside world. It's It's an utterly hopeless situation. And yet in that story, there are these moments of hope, moments where he finds that he's more able to do things. A particularly touching moment, his speech therapist finds a way for him to communicate. So what she does is she reads out the alphabet and when she gets to the letter that he wants to use, he winks. And using that, he's able to put together words, sentences. In the end, he actually writes this book, from within this stroke paralysis. It's an amazing story of hope in the midst of hopelessness. And for me, it's a wonderful reminder of of how we experience hope and hopelessness and how they sit against a reality that that can often conflict with our emotions. So his experience, in many ways, is not unique. Many people experience utter hopelessness. And sometimes it's the darkest of humans' experiences. Um, Fear actually is better than hopelessness, isn't it? You're better off to be fearful because at least you're hoping something doesn't happen. When you're hopeless, you've actually decided there is no future, that this will not change. Hopelessness is horrible, but hopelessness can be disconnected from reality. There are times in which um, depression is the classic example, isn't it? Depression can be a feeling of hopelessness that often you can't make connection with the reality enough to realise that it's not that bad. You know what I mean? That, that there actually is a world of, of opportunities out there, that there is something. At the same time, it can be the other way around. That you can be in a, a hopeless situation and then sometimes you can find hope that, that sort of shouldn't be there. Now, it's possible to feel hopeful when, when reality is not working out. Well, anyway... Um, let's go to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be looking at two portraits of hopelessness, two men in despairs. Uh, for one of them, the despair is passing, 
It's temporary. His feeling of despair doesn't actually match reality. For the other, it's reality catching up with him. Um, He actually has been trying to deny that his situation is dire and the end has come. So first, we see David. Um, And David is the one whose despair is passing. He has this moment of hopelessness, but he's actually guaranteed a future. Um, We discovered that last week David took a major risk. He went off and he lined up with the Philistine army. And the thing is, when you go out to be at war... You leave your family and your home unguarded. And so back comes David and his soldiers and everything's gone. The Amalekites have been raiding. They've taken wives, children, animals, destroyed their home. It is a hopeless moment. Chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. And they had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they, as they went on their way. And when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. And their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. It's bad enough to lose your family and your home. But David has the added despair that his men blame him. Verse 5, David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed... Because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters. I I, I really hate the feeling of causing loss for somebody else. Like, it's bad enough when I experience loss. I had this moment when I was working. um, I mean, I've mucked around computers for years. Sometimes I remember to back up. Sometimes I don't. Um, But I had this moment when I was working. I was upgrading the email server for this workplace. Multiple employees, multiple years of email transactions... And somehow I managed not only to corrupt the, the, the machine I was upgrading, I inadvertently corrupted the backup as well. I lost everything. Years of work. You, you can imagine how low I felt, how it felt to go to my boss and explain what had happened and just admit there was nothing at this point any of us could do. I, I contacted the experts. There was no retrieving it. It is horrible believe me well david he finds there there is this desperate situation but somehow he finds hope for a future because he calls out to god and god hears him verse six right at the end david found strength in the lord his god and david said to abiathar the priest the son of ahimelech bring me the ephod and abiathar brought it to him and david inquired of the lord shall i pursue this reigning party will i overtake them Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And so he does. And against all odds, he gets his stuff back. And not just his own stuff. They actually get all the, 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 the um, spoils of war that these guys have collected from the Philistine cities they've been raiding. And so David's despair leads to blessing. Um, because what he does is he takes all that extra stuff and he doesn't give it back to the Philistines because they're God's enemies, he hands it on to the Israelites. He gives it to his army. He gives it to the the cities that have supported him while he's been in exile away from Jerusalem. This moment of despair leads to blessing for a whole bunch of people. Verse 26, When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir. You can tell I 
deliberately didn't give this to Joel to read. Um, to those in Aroah, Shipmoth, Eshtemoah and Rakal, to those in towns of the Jeremielites and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Bor, Ashan, Athak and Hebron and to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. David had been in this situation of hopelessness and suddenly he realises his feelings don't match reality. There is hope because God is for him. And, and the, the picture here, I think, is, is more than anything else, it's a reminder of what happens with Jesus. And Jesus, as he approaches the cross, there is despair, there is hopelessness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in his abandonment, it, it's, it's temporary because God is for him. And as God rescues Jesus, he doesn't just bless him, he blesses us as well. He, he pours out gifts to the captives, he, he blesses his people and we get salvation as well. It's not the same story for Saul. So his feelings finally catch up with reality. He, we saw his despair last week, we, we had this moment, I'll read it again, right at the end of chapter 28. Saul's heard the word of God from Samuel Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. And he has this tragic last meal with this witch, two condemned people together. Now, chapter 31, his end comes and it's swift. Uh, he's been denying reality, he's been trying to fight God's word, and now he discovers that there is no future in it. Verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Geboah. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. His end comes, and I say it's swift, but it's, it's messy, isn't it? Lonely and painful, because suicide is this ultimate expression of despair. He takes his own life, verse 4. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw, me, draw your sword and run me through. All these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. And so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And Saul's despair is infectious. His armour bearer takes his life, his army is decimated and the nearby villagers, they run for their lives. Verse 5, when the armour bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armour bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. You can see the contrast between these two chapters, can't you? Uh, David and his men, there was temporary despair, but there was a future. Saul and those who followed him, it's despair that's catching up with reality. Saul is the rejected king and now judgment is coming. It's quite a picture of us without Jesus. Uh, let me jump to that Bible reading in Ephesians 2. Um, and listen to how the New Testament describes our situation when we haven't known Jesus yet, when we haven't met him. We're utterly hopeless. Ephesians 2 verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
I know we try to deny it in our funerals. We try to rescue our nobility, honour the lives of the people we've loved. We really do just do our best to hide the despair of death, but it's a bit like Jabesh Gilead down at the end of this chapter, where they go and rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons and they give them an honourable burial, but it's death nonetheless. Without Jesus, without resurrection power and forgiveness, we and the people we love are without hope. Now, I want to unpack that in just a moment, but I know the big issue that gets raised in this passage is suicide, and it feels neglectful not to at least address it before we move on. So, can I just give you a few thoughts about suicide? We've been debating euthanasia in um, uh, Parliament at times recently. Maybe it's a personal part of your experience. So, let me just give you some thoughts. First, can I say, suicide is tragic. It's an expression of despair. I mean, Saul, you know, in one sense, he's receiving what he deserves. That's fine. But we read it and it is sad. Whenever we speak of suicide, it should be this deep sense of sadness. It means that someone, something in someone's life is so horrible, so terrifying, so difficult. It's going to involve so much pain that in their opinion, they, that, that is more terrifying than death itself. That is hard. And we need to feel for people who reach this moment. Uh, the second thing that 1 Samuel has been reminding us of is that God values life. Uh, the whole way in which David is unwilling to take Saul's life, even though he's been promised the kingship, he knows that God has his timing in Saul's life. And even though Saul is acting in rebellion against him, God is keeping... Saul and, and has, has his plans and David won't overstep that and so when we ever reach, reach a point of talking about someone's death and the whole question of euthanasia we really need to honour life and, and remember that God has his plans the sad thing is that sometimes our feelings don't match reality um, Sometimes we, we're like David, there's despair, but there is actually a future. God knows the plan, we don't. And so, yeah, we really need to be very careful when we think about life to value it like God values it, to let him set the timing. But the third thing I want to say, um, because I know it can get uh, confused in church circles, is that suicide isn't the unforgivable sin. So Saul, in the end, isn't condemned for his suicide. That is not the final say on Saul's life. He spent a long time rejecting God well before that. And that will be the question of his eternity. And likewise, sin is a tragic situation. It is this moment where someone is so reached a despair they can't see beyond it. If they choose in that moment to take that action, that is not the deciding point of their life as a whole. Um, it comes down to the question of, is it our repentance that saves us, or is it God? If it's about our repentance, sure, okay, well, you reach this moment where you can't repent. It's the one sin that you can't actually say sorry afterwards. But it's not about our repentance, is it? We're forgiven because of what Jesus has done. 
And so God can look at that tragic moment and know that a life that was lived trusting God but, you know, reached this point of despair for a moment and it has a tragic consequence. That's not the decision about that person's life. I hope that's helpful. I'm more than happy to chat a bit more afterwards but I just couldn't encounter this moment without putting some words around it. But let's go back and pick up some thoughts from this passage. The first thing that we're being reminded of is that not all despair is grounded in reality and that has a good and a bad side to it. So the good side is that sometimes Christians will reach despair. Um, It is actually possible to feel hopeless. Uh, Paul speaks of despairing of life itself. Sometimes Christians look at the future and it feels bleak. And that's normal. So depression is a reality for Christians. It's not like we're immune from it. And so I have a friend who's a faithful Christian and yet he's constantly falling into depression and that, that's just part of the journey. I even had people at Bible college. They're studying to be ministers of the gospel but they, they struggle with depression. It is possible to feel hopeless but that's not the reality. The reality is found in our relationship with Jesus. Uh, the other side of it though is that there is a reality that should give us pause. Uh, To put it another way, your friend matters. What we're seeing in this passage is that who you are attached to really does matter. Um, If you're a friend of David, you have hope. If you're a friend of Saul, you don't. If you're living without Christ, there is no hope. But let's go back to Ephesians 2, because it goes on. It speaks about the hopelessness of life without Jesus, but then it says... Remember that at that time, before you followed Jesus, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. When you're a friend of Jesus, despair is passing, you have hope. If you follow the prince of the world, there is no hope. So your friend matters, and where I want to go with that this morning is simply to say that your friends, therefore, matter. Uh, We could reflect on this personally, um, that question of who are my friends with, Jesus, or am I on my own, am I facing judgment, or am I forgiven? That's an important question, but it's also the question for our friends. It, it, It matters, their eternal future matters, and it's why we started Sure Hope, because of this reality of judgment that really is hopeless and the hope that comes in knowing Jesus. So, just to remind you, we are intentionally working as a church family so that more people can hear about Jesus. I just want to remind us, um, Sam Chan, we had him speaking a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about these key moments that change people's minds. He talks about how the journey to know Jesus, it's a bit of a progression People don't just suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, I want to follow Jesus. And so what we're doing as a church family, and I'm worried that this image hasn't come across. You wouldn't believe it, would you? Okay. I was going to talk about, we have this sort of conscious decision we've made as a church family that we're going to help people get to know Jesus. We have four stages. We're sort of aiming to run events in different stages. So we want to run connect events. Connecting, just building the relationship. Because if if I hate gluten-free bread... Where will I start to think that maybe I should have gluten-free bread? Well, probably I'm going to meet someone 
that has it and they're okay and they're actually a normal person and they seem to almost enjoy eating this bread. And I suddenly shift from my thinking, thinking I'd never go there to, oh, I guess it's possible. It's at least conceptually possible. And likewise, with, with people coming to know Jesus, often the first step is to meet a Christian and go, hey, they haven't got two heads. So we want to connect, then we want to care. We want people to just experience what Christian community is like. It's the taste and see. How, what's the next step in wanting to taste gluten-free bread? Well, I, I might try a little square at the shops one day when someone hands me it with a bit of salmon on top or something. And I want people to just come along and taste Christian fellowship and see the impact of Jesus in people's lives. So we try and run some events so it's just easy to hang out with our Christian friends. So we care, we connect, sorry, we connect, we care, we communicate. Then we have things that we run where we're actually sharing about Jesus. We ran the event last term about um, uh, religious freedom. It was a chance to talk about Jesus and how he impacts our society. We do Christmas and Easter, great chances. We've got the Mark drama coming up. All chances just for people to hear about Jesus. So eventually they come along, they're willing to learn a bit about Jesus and then we want to invite them to commit. Come to the point where we're saying, hey, we actually think this is you. Um, we, we think you want to make this part of your life. How about making the decision? That's what we're doing as a church family. I just wanted to remind us, with all these events coming up, maybe you look at each event and you go, okay, my friend can't, make, they would never come to Christmas. They're not at that point yet. But they like drama. Maybe they'll come along and just watch a play and they'll get to hear a bit about Jesus. Maybe it's just, they, they're just, I'd love them to meet my friends. Maybe they'll come along to our open house. We're going to have a jumping castle. We're going to meet some people and build some relationships. But our goal is for people to be friends with Jesus because the judgment is coming. <laughs> that there is a reality that is actually hopeless. And we don't want our friends to end up there. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, please keep working to see more and more people find hope in Jesus. Now, Lord, we know in our own experience, we were hopeless without him. We, we were actually your enemies. Thank you that you sent Jesus to save us. We pray, Heavenly Father, for the, for the break and for the term ahead and for the many opportunities we'll have to invite people to know Christ. Help us to use them well. We ask especially for your work in our friends' lives so that they will come to know Jesus too. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, well, um, if you would like to...